Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. Well, today I want to talk to you about uh, finding joy. You know, uh, never has there been a year in which saying Happy Thanksgiving feels so paradoxical, uh, such a misnomer as 2020. Let's be honest, finding joy in 2020 is elusive. Finding joy in life is elusive, and it seems like discouragement is ever-present. I don't need to enumerate for you all of the challenges that this year has brought. You know them, for, from political polarization to economic turmoil to social tensions, you name it. All of those things happening in our culture. And for many of us, as we look at 2020, we would have to say it did not go as we expected. For some, it hasn't even gone as we had hoped. If ever there was a year that felt like a mulligan, it's 2020. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that we have been called to be a people of thanksgiving. And I'm convinced that it is true that sometimes the greatest opportunities for us are gift-wrapped in the greatest challenges for us. Let me say that again. Sometimes your greatest opportunity are going to come gift-wrapped in your greatest challenges. And what is the great challenge of this moment? I think the great challenge and opportunity of this moment in 2020 is for us to have joy. For us to have joy is one of the great witnessing and evangelistic tools or gifts that God has given to us in this season. When we think about those many people who are searching for it, looking for it, longing for it, and simply can't find it, the fact that we have found it in Jesus points to the joy of the gospel that directs us to faith in Jesus Christ. And today I want to talk to you about finding joy, but here's the question. Is it possible for us to have joy in a year like 2020? In addition to all of the cultural things that are happening in the world around us, let's talk a moment about what's happening even within us. So many of you are sitting here today, and your story is more than just a story of brokenness in the world, but maybe broken relationships in your own family. Maybe strained relationships with your children or your spouse, or maybe your grandparent in here and you're looking uh, at a holiday in which you're not going to be with your grandchildren and all that lays heavy on your heart. And then uh, the grief and the loss and the things that are happening inside of our, our physical bodies. Is it possible for us to have joy in 2020? Well, you might be surprised by my answer, but I would say for many people, the answer is no. For many people in our world, the answer to the question of joy is no, in particular, if you do not know Christ. If you do not know Christ, where do you look for joy? I'm not talking about fleeting moments of happiness, but I'm talking about a deep, abiding, internal peace that comes from the reality of knowing that Christ is my Lord and King and sovereign over all, the type of joy that can sustain you regardless of your circumstance. Is that possible? Well, if you ask most people, do they have joy, that type of joy that I just described, the answer would be no. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis said this. I wrote down this little quote. He says, for those who don't know Christ, joy is always uh, an unrealized desire. 
for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. When you don't know Christ, joy is always elusive. But when you do know Christ, joy is one of the earmarks of Christ in us, the hope of glory. David Jeremiah, the pastor, said it this way. He says, to have joy filling your life causes people to want to know what you have. Is there something in your life, is there such a joy in your life that people look at you and say, I want to know what you have? So here's the question, where do we go to find joy in the face of a broken and backward world? Well, I'm glad you asked. The book is Philippians. We're going to go to the book of Philippians this morning where I think that Paul does a masterful job laying out a case for joy. Now, we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 4, but I want to first give you a brief overview or at least a tone of the texture of the book that Paul has written here, this letter that Paul has written here that we call the book of Philippians. Let's, let's look for a moment at chapter 1. In chapter 1, what we discover is that Philippians is what I would call a thanksgiving epistle. It's a letter that Paul is writing to simply say thank you, to say thank you to the church at Philippi for their ongoing care and concern for him expressed in this particular situation through their financial support of his ministry. They had sent a financial gift through one of the good men who were leaders in their church, Epaphroditus. Now, Philippi was special to the heart of Paul. He also writes this letter to express to them how much joy they bring him. After all, they were the first church that Paul helped to plant, the first Christ-centered community, this covenant community of believers that Paul helped to plant in this uh, city called Philippi. So much more could be said about his relationship with them. We'll unpack this a little bit more as we go throughout. But he, but he uh, loved this group, and they were one of the rare churches he even allowed to support him financially. Let's look at his words, verses uh, 3 through 5 of chapter 1. Look at what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's clear what Paul's uh, emphasis is here. It is, I thank God for you, and you fill my heart with joy. This is a book about joy. Sixteen times in these four short chapters, Paul mentions some form of the word joy or rejoice. But what makes this letter so unique, there's so many things that makes this letter unique, but one of the things that makes this letter so unique is that he is writing this letter from a jail cell. He is writing this letter while in prison. That is not exactly the situation you would think about when you think about a joyful man, a joyful person writing from jail. But that's exactly what we have here in this letter written by the hand of the Apostle Paul. He is writing during one of the most difficult seasons of his life, but you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell. How many want to be at their best when things are at their worst? How many want to have a joy that radiates and shines when things seem to be the most difficult? I pray that that would be true about you and true about me. Paul was in prison, but he saw God at work even in jail. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for the sake of Christ. This is not exactly where you would expect a man to have this type of joy, but clearly we see why he had this type of joy. It's because of his perspective. He knew that God was sovereign over all and that even my difficult circumstances God uses in order to advance his gospel. God knows how to be at work, my friends, not just in our mountaintop moments. God knows how to be at work in our lives when things aren't going just as we expected or had hoped. Paul saw God at work in his difficult circumstances. What about you? What about me? Do we see God at work in our difficult circumstances? You know, Paul was a realist as well. He knew there was only one of two ways this whole thing was going to end. Either he was going to be released and go free, or he was going to die and lose his life. Either way, he was at peace with it. I don't know how uh, Paul writes, quite honestly, with this type of joy, but look at his words at the end of verse number 18 through verse 24. Look at what he says. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Such sweet words. He goes on in verse number 22 to say, For I am, for, uh, I'm sorry, he says, If I am, rather, to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that would be far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Who speaks of death this way? Who in the face of death, sitting in a prison, writes with such joy and such peace of heart to say, listen, I'm okay, however this works out, I'm going to be good. Because if I'm not here, that means I'm with my Savior. Let me just say that again. If I'm not here, that means I'm with my Savior. How many believe that? That to be absent in the body is to be present with God. How many truly believe that? Even in the face of death, we as believers should have a different disposition because we know it's not just the ceasing of consciousness. It's not just us returning to dirt or dust. For us, it is receiving the reward of faith in Jesus Christ, a life well lived. And so he was confident. His ability to have joy in the face of undesirable circumstances is absolutely uncanny. How did he have that type of joy? Well, the answer is Christ. I told you 16 times in four chapters he mentions the word rejoice or joy. Well, in those same four chapters, 51 times he mentions the name of Christ. Listen, Paul's premise is very clear. Christ is the source of joy. Let me say that again, because some of you are, are searching for love in all the wrong places. Some of you are looking for joy in places that will never bring you joy. If you need joy, the answer is simple, is that Christ is the source of joy. But just me telling you that does not bring you joy. Joy is not just an intellectual uh, reality. 
You can say amen to everything I just said and be still numbered among the many believers who know this to be true but have not experienced this in their lives. So Paul doesn't stop at the declaration that in his presence there is the fullness of joy. Paul goes on to give them practical guidance or directives on how to experience it in their own lives. And so I want to go to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we see three directives that Paul gives to this church for how they can experience joy in their lives. And he makes it extraordinarily practical. It's because he loves them. He's had an abundance of joy, and he wants them to experience that joy. How many want your children, if you have them, to experience joy? I know I do. How many want your friends and your family members to experience joy? I know I do. And Paul loved this church, and we'll see it deeply in just a moment, and he wants them to experience joy. Now, the key verse of the section we're about to read is verse number four. Look there just for a moment. We'll come back to it, but it says here, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul wants them to have joy. He is commanding them to rejoice. I want you to have joy, but how do we... There we go. There we go. I want to have joy regardless of this microphone. That's all right. I, I don't mind using my outside voice. All right. So the first thing that Paul says here is that we're gonna ha- you're going to have to reconcile your relationships. Paul wants it to be very clear that the health of our relationships impacts our joy. The health of our relationships either enhance or diminish our joy. Let's look at verse number one, two, and three. In verse number one, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, my brothers, rather, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, all throughout this letter, we see that Paul loves the church at Philippi, but this verse crystallizes it maybe better than any other verse. Listen to the terms of endearment, the uh, words of affection he uses when describing this church. In one verse, he uses six terms of endearment to communicate his deep affection for them. This is a power-packed verse. Listen to what he says. My brothers, those whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, and yes, my beloved. This is him saying again and again and again, I love you. I want you to have joy because I love you. This is like a parental love, the love that parents have for children. It's been said, and I think it's true, that you're only as happy as your saddest child. When you love your children, you want them to have joy, and so much of your joy comes when they have joy. Paul loves them. When he refers to them as his crown, this is the winner's wreath that was placed on the head of a runner who ran a race and won. And so what Paul is saying is that you are my winner's wreath. You are the fruit of my ministry. You are the evidence of my apostleship. And because of that, I want to see you flourish. I want to see, uh, I want the world to see, rather, what the gospel does in the hearts 
of those who put their faith in Christ. The world is asking, does Christ make a difference? I hope our response is absolutely yes. How many believe that, that Christ makes a difference in the life of a person who puts their faith and trust in him? How many believe that the gospel is a supernatural message that brings supernatural transformation to those who have trusted in Jesus? Well, you know what? Every pastor wants their church to reflect that. I know that's true for me. My heart breaks whenever we don't live up to the joy of the gospel. I want the joy of Jesus to be evident in our lives so that the world might look at, at Woodsiders, the way that Paul wanted the world to look at the believers at Philippi to say, man, there's something different about them because of the joy they have in Jesus. But then he goes on to uh, directly address a conflict that was in their midst. Look at what Paul says verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. If we were to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, what we would see is that this was an open letter that Paul had written to all of the church, all the believers at Philippi, and uh, to the overseers and to the deacons. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it must be like to have an open letter uh, written to the church? Imagine me standing up here reading an open letter to the church, and I mention your conflict to the whole church. These were two women that were close to Paul's heart. He calls these women co-laborers in the gospel. These were women that were side by side with him in ministry. Awesome women. Women who were examples and role models. But not only that, they were clearly influential women in the church. So much so that we're not told what their conflict is, but what we are told is that their conflict had become so significant that it reached the level of the Apostle Paul. He became aware of their conflict. These women who were known for declaring the gospel are now known for being a distraction to the gospel. You see, my friends, when we are in conflict with one another, it distracts from the gospel. And if ever there's been a year where the church has been distracted from the gospel, it's been this year. We have allowed so much of the divisions of the world to become divisions within our midst. Maybe after the dust settles, after it's all said and done, the greatest carnage, the, the greatest collateral damage of 2020 after all the dust settles might just be the number of broken and severed relationships. Over and over again throughout this year, I've had to pray with people who were friends before they came into this year, but somehow this year wore too much on their friendship and they're no longer friends anymore. And I can't tell you how much it grieves me as a pastor or any pastor whenever the flock is at war with one another on social media or even face to face. Instead of coming alongside of one another and saying, listen, we have a disagreement, but we love one another. How do we work together to solve this? What we've done is treated one another often as enemies instead of as families. And it's shown up. Uh, sometimes it's shown up in life groups that are strained right now. 
Sometimes it's shown up in relationships, even in teams that are meant to be leading God's flock together. Sometimes there's such tension that what should be focused on declaring the gospel now is a distraction from the gospel. What Paul wants is for these women to quickly reconcile. And he tells the whole church, he says, listen, stop whatever you're doing, and to the whole church, help these women to reconcile. Listen to what his directive is. It is very simple. He tells them to agree in the Lord. Notice what he didn't do. He did not pick winners. He did not pick sides. And he did not tell them to pick different directions. He did not say, hey, you're not getting along, so you go to that church and you go to that church. He did not say, hey, you're not getting along, and we're going to pick Yodia or Syntyche. He, he didn't really care about any of that. Sometimes it's not about trying to win the argument. God has not called us to be great debaters. He's not called us to win arguments. He's called us to win souls. What Paul simply wants is you need to agree. And even if that means that one of you has to concede the argument, it's worth it for the advancement of the gospel. Sometimes losing the argument is worth it for the gospel to advance. I didn't get one amen for that. I, I paused too. I didn't get one hallelujah, one preach it pastor, nobody clapped. How many have a, there you go, praise God. How many, how many have a hard time losing an argument? Come on, let's be honest. Have a hard time conceding an argument. It's not easy, is it? But sometimes to advance the gospel, you have to turn a person and a situation over to the Lord and say, I'm just going to love you through this. Election years are hard on any group of people. It's also hard on the church. And I've watched us through an election year reflect oftentimes the same contentiousness that's in the world in our own midst. Let me just tell you this, friends, that uh, voting is important and picking the right leaders are important. But let us remember the whole beautiful concept of limited government. I love that concept. One of the great beauties of the American form of government is limited government. What that means is this, friends. That means that when we elect officials, we uh, give them power over a limited number of things. We give them power maybe over economic decisions or foreign affairs uh, decisions, some of the decisions that affect uh, uh, laws and statutes. But you know what we don't give them the power over? we don't give them the power over our friendships. We don't elect them so that they can have the determining factor of who I'm going to have relationship with. The fact of the matter is, is that our friendships last longer than election cycles. And the fact of the matter is, is that the health of our relationship will determine the credibility of our witness and so he says to Yodia, he says to Syntyche, he says to the whole church, put your earthly differences aside, focus on advancing the gospel, and quickly agree with one another. Why? Because the health of our relationships will either enhance or diminish our joy. Think about it for just a moment. Think about every great moment in your life. 
Think about graduations or babies being born or weddings or even a great moment at work. Think about how much joy those moments bring. Now, think about those exact same moments without the key people in your life being there. Think about those moments without family or friend to cheer for you, to support you, to celebrate you. Every moment I just named went from a moment of joy to a moment of sadness when you remove people, the people who mean the most to you. Our joy is either enhanced or diminished by the health of our relationships. I don't know who you need to agree with in the Lord, but pray because I believe this applies to all of our lives. Amen? Second directive he tells them to do is to pray for peace. Look at verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He doesn't write that out of senility. He didn't forget that he had just said it. He repeats himself for emphatic purposes because he wants their lives to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. He goes on in verse number 5 to talk about another fruit of the Spirit. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He tells him, I want your lives to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. Joy and gentleness should be a part of your, your life. You shouldn't be known for a lack of joy. You should not be known for a retaliatory spirit. You should be gentle and you should be joyful as believers. These are of much valuable value in the eyes of God. But then he contrasts what a life full of the fruit of the Spirit looks like versus one that it's not. He says in verse number six, do not be anxious about anything. Notice that the opposite of these characteristics of joy and peace is an anxious heart. Now, an anxious heart doesn't mean that you don't care or you don't have concern. One of the great ways we express love to people is through our deep care and our deep concern. What his warning is against is against worry. He's, he's telling them, don't have a life that is marked by worry, but have a life that is marked by peace and that is marked by joy. And what is his uh, emphasis or his encouragement on why this should happen? It's because the Lord is at hand. The presence of the Lord is among us, and his return is imminent. And let that rule and reign in your minds and in your hearts. And that will bring you peace. How do we experience this peace? It's through our prayer life and through our relationship with God. Notice he tells them how to overcome an anxious heart. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the payoff? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. My friends, if we have anxiety, the answer is to take it to the Lord in prayer. And I'm telling you, this works. How many have seen this work? Being anxious for something and going to God in prayer. And the sad thing is, is for many of us, we have seen it work over and over again, but yet forget it, get spiritual amnesia. The next challenge or trial that comes, we try to take it on ourselves. Anxiety builds, worry builds, and we uh, forget to pray. 
But God wants our lives to be marked by joy and peace for a watching world. What a great witness for those who don't know Christ. What is it about you that brings you joy and peace? Have you ever known someone who seemed, at least on the surface, to have an anxiety-free life? Have you ever met someone like that who seemed to exude joy and peace like all the time? I'm telling you, those are rare birds, but I have met a few of those people. As a matter of fact, one of those people is in my own family, my older brother. My older brother is one of the most stress-free, anxiety-free people that you will ever meet. You remember that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? I think he must have wrote it. The fact of the matter is, is that he has so much uh, uh, peace. And I've seen him go through really hard times, but he's the one in the family that even when we're going through hard times, he's still going to be smiling. He's still going to be laughing. He's going to make all the rest of us joyful as well. His joy, his, uh, his, his laughter, his, his smile is contagious. There are many days when I sit back in and admire him for that and say, man, I wish I had that in my life as much as he does. And I've come to realize, I think that part of the reason why my brother has so much joy and seems to be able to live a stress-free life is because he took the advice of my grandmother and my mother. Now, my grandmother and my mother used to have this saying. Maybe you've heard it before. If you're going to pray, don't worry. And if you're going to worry, don't pray. We got two options in life. If you're going to pray, don't worry. Don't waste your time worrying because God's got it. And if you're going to worry, don't waste your time praying. But you need to choose. And this is what Paul is telling us to do. He's telling us to choose to pray and to take it to Jesus. And when we do, my friends, I just present this to you as a challenge. I dare you to take your anxieties to God in prayer today. And I promise you, you'll see verse number seven, that this God of peace will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. Amen? And then the third challenge he gives them is to think on good things. Look at verses eight and nine. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is Paul's way of saying to them, your thought life matters in this whole pursuit of joy. You can't rejoice in the Lord always when you're thinking about the wrong things. Look at what he's telling them to guard against. He's saying, think about those things which are uh, true. This is the opposite of uh, that which is false or deceptive, what we might be tempted to call fake news. Think about those things that are honorable, those things that are commendable, those things that uh, tend towards dignity. Think about those things that are just. Think about things that bring about justice or conform to the will of God. Think about those things that are pure, undefiled, Stay away from the impure stuff. Think about those things that are lovely. That word there really speaks to encouraging uh, peace, in, in particular between people and not conflict. Think about those things that are commendable. And then he says, after these six things, that these things are excellent and worthy of praise. Think about the right things. 
You know, after I read this again and again and again, it caused me to say, man, maybe it's time to take a break from social media. Because social media is a cesspool for everything that's opposite of this. Social media has become a place where you go in order to experience outrage. And we often will find ourselves in conflicts that we wouldn't otherwise have been in because of social media. Now, I do believe you can use social media to the good, but I think you uh, would agree with me that the environment has become way too contentious. And you know what I have yet to find? I have yet to find someone who comes to me and says, I came to Christ because someone beat me in a Facebook argument. I have, I have yet to meet the person who says, what transformed my life was this awesome tweet. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that what Christ has called us to do is to protect and guard our thought life. And so maybe the greatest gift you can give to yourself for the next 30 days is to limit your social media exposure. And while you're at it, maybe cutting off the news You'll be okay if you cut off the news because you got the greatest, most accurate news report ever given to man right there in your lap. It is the word of the living God. And it helps us to be able to think on these excellent things. And after Paul tells them how much their thought life matters, he says some of the most uh, bold words any writer has ever written. He says in verse number nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In other words, he's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. What he is saying is I'm doing more than just talking the talk. I've modeled it for you. He's writing almost like a parent to this church. And I think about it as a parent. We've all heard the statement, more truth is caught than taught. Paul is not just lecturing them, he's modeling it. Let's model it. Let's model what it means to guard our thought life and to think intentionally on those things that the Word of God commends to us. And what will happen if we do? The God of peace will be with you. I want the God of peace to be with you. And for some of you, the God of peace feels so far away. Today, if you know you need a relationship with Jesus, I just want you to respond to this message. This is a great Thanksgiving for you to either give your life to the Lord for the first time or come back to the Lord. Maybe you don't have this joy in your life. It only comes from Jesus. Christ is the source of all joy. And if you're watching me online right now and you know you need a relationship with Jesus, just type the word connect and one of our team members will follow up with you and tell you what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But if you are in this auditorium and you need that, after we're done worshiping one last time, we're going to pray for you. We'll be here to pray together. Let's all stand all over this church. As the praise team comes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege we have to be able to worship Christ, our King. Lord, we pray that we would experience your joy. We love you, give you praise. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.